Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. We're pleased today to have Mark Gabriel with us. Mark is the administrator and the CEO of the Western Area Power Administration, which is one of four power marketing agencies in the country. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing terrific. Thanks. Good. So just to lay the groundwork, you have about 17,000 miles of transmission extending over 15 states and knitting together 57 hydropower plants the last time I counted. Is that about right? That's correct. Okay. Assets of about $4 billion, sales of about $1 billion, and you touched the lives of at least 40 million Americans. So my first question to you is, how do we need to reconfigure the transmission grid as, as we try to march towards a carbon-free world? Well, that's, uh, that's something we try to deal with every single day, Marty. You know, uh, I, I jokingly say our footprint is like going from Paris to Moscow and Athens to Oslo uh, with all the politics in between. And the changes that we're seeing right now, particularly losing inertial resources, also known as coal and nuclear plants and some gas, is really changing the system dynamics and operations when you uh, add into that a variety of technologies that are being uh, included on the edge of the grid, and whether that's uh, solar on the rooftop of a home, utility-scale solar, or storage, it really is changing some of the operating characteristics of the grid. So, for example, when we do lose one of the fewer and fewer coal plants on the grid, the ability of our system to pick up that change has really uh, required an acceleration of our thinking. It has required us candidly to add several people over the last few years. We've added real-time engineers who every 15 minutes have to look at and reconfigure what's happening on the grid. So as we look out to a carbon-free system, what we have to understand is that there are operating parameters that will be changing. And as somebody who's responsible for a very large part of the Western footprint, our biggest challenge today is getting real-time information in real time, coupled with the fact that uh, unlike, let's say, the East Coast or the Southeast, where there's a lot of power plant density, when we lose a power plant in the middle of Wyoming or Colorado, it takes a lot to uh, fill that hole. For example, the transmission system is used to being uh, fairly well occupied most of the day, and all of a sudden, a big piece of that drops out because of the generation resource. So over time, it's going to require an investment in technology. It's going to require more intelligence, and it's going to require a, a different understanding of the how the grid operates. So let's look at that from a high level and then from a, a ground level. Uh, on the high level, there's been discussion lately about as vast as your system is, uh, the merits of possibly linking the east and west grids uh, possibly with ERCOT, with more transmission links. Do you think that that would address some of the, the problems that you just alluded to? 
Well, I, I think this is a multifaceted answer. I do think uh, expanding the connections which exist between the eastern and western grid. And remember, there are six ACDC ties between the east grid and the west grid. There's four in WAPA's service territory. And I think right now that's the quickest and best way that we can make this carbon-free future happen. Well, over my several decades in this industry, there's been lots of talk of a transmission superhighway. I think that's less likely, at least in the next 10 years, because of the time that it takes to build those types of uh, large-scale transmission projects. So, so Mark, just, just to see if I understand you, you say you have four major links from NWAPA to the Eastern Grid. That's correct. Do you recommend increasing that, and by what number? Well, again, I, I don't think we need to increase the number of the connections. I think what we need to do as an industry is invest in upgrading those connections. Today, for example, in Sydney, Nebraska, which is one of the connections that WAPA has to, happens to have, it's the uh, Victoria Smith Center. Um, right now, it's roughly you know 200 megawatts in one direction and 150 megawatts in the other, right? Because the grids are asynchronous. What I would envision, and I think is a wise move in the really in the short to midterm, is upgrading those that particular ACDC tie, and let's say make it five or six hundred megawatts in each direction. Because if you think about the real challenge that we have, Marty, is making sure that there's enough diversity in the carbon-free resource. It does not that much good if we've got tons of solar in Arizona and all we're doing is moving it to Nevada or California. I think it would do a tremendous amount of good, given the time zone differences, if we could move Arizona or California solar all the way through into, let's say, the SPP footprint. So making the right investments and then expanding the conductor capacity, so to speak, from those connections. Now, would I like to see a transmission superhighway connecting into the WAPA system going all the way across our footprint? Absolutely. But I'm also a realist trying to figure out how do we make sure that we keep the lights on, not just for WAPA's 40 million Americans, but for the millions of Americans in the West, as well as providing benefits to those folks across onto the Eastern interconnection. So you bring up an important point, because as we sit here, and I just checked before we started recording this podcast, PG&E has an excess of 13,000 customers that are without power. Southern Cal Edison has 25, close to 2,500. And California is going through the first rolling blackouts they've experienced in 19 years. How can this problem best be addressed? And uh, what's your assessment of the causes that can be most immediately and readily addressed? Well, I'm glad you split the question into two. On the first one, uh, having lived through the the both the Northeast Midwest blackout in 03 when I was at the Electric Power Research Institute and certainly in 01 and 2000 when I was in California. One of the things that I believe we've, we've misunderstood is that markets are just financial overlays on physical systems, right? So last September, September 29th, actually, uh, the California Independent System Operator told all of us that they anticipated being roughly 2,300 megawatts short by this summer 
a number that will grow between now and 2024, upwards of six or 7,000 megawatts. So I, I think anybody who believes that this was a surprise failed to both listen to the warnings and to recognize the history of what is going on. And I look at it by in the simple fact that, again, markets are financial overlays on physical operating systems. When you eliminate capacity as opposed to energy, the system is very unstable. We've all seen the duck curve in California. I jokingly call it the giraffe curve because the neck is getting taller and steeper. So you've got a situation where we are closing plants. We do not have capacity to pick up those times when, A, it's hot, the wind's not blowing, it may be cloudy. Right? It isn't to say that there's any fault here from my perspective about people have blamed renewables, people have blamed the market. I think we've got an interesting coincidence of challenge. That is, the system needs capacity, that fundamental inertial load, which if I could make a pitch for hydropower is why we have to maintain and potentially expand hydropower resources. At the very same time that we've got more intermittent resources on the system. We've seen this over the years. It is not magic, it is physics. And as I like to say, uh, you know, physics trumps policy every day. So what do we need to do? Which is really, I think, the question we all have to be asking. I think we've got to figure out how do we value capacity in a way that it incents folks to maintain some spinning reserves so that we don't run into this problem again. Battery storage over time will certainly help this. But I really think it ties, Marty, back to your original question. What do we need to do in a carbon-free system? From my perspective, we've got to have more intelligence to take advantage of the various components that are being added to the grid. And I, I go back to my experience in the great uh, Northeast and Midwest blackout in 03. In our research, we found that there were 400 megawatts of standby generation sitting in Manhattan, which could have been used to bootstrap the system back up again. The problem was, first and foremost, there was no way that the utilities or the New York ISO at that point could actually get and dispatch those to bootstrap the system. So we, we've got to think about how do we operate in an environment where there's less capacity and at the same time protect what capacity that remains. Now, California aiming to increase their percentage of uh, renewables to 60% by 2030. Is that going to exacerbate this problem? Well, I don't think it's the, the addition Marty, of, of more renewables necessarily, but we've got to figure out what the right balance is, right? As you add renewables, we have this weird market dynamic. And the market dynamic is renewables are being rewarded financially and other, assets, other resources are being penalized. So that if somebody has a gas plant, a peaker plant, heck, even some hydropower, uh, they're not compensated for that. So as that number of renewables goes up, we're operating closer and closer and closer to the edge. Right? California is a 49,000 megawatt system, give or take a few hundred megawatts. And I can tell you from a WAPA perspective, we worked really hard over last weekend to get them 
whatever megawatts we could. In, in some cases, we were turning pump loads off to get them 20 megawatts. So it shows how we're operating closer and closer to the limits. That's forced by the financial model and markets. And at the very same time, we're adding more and more of the very thing that is pushing us to those limits. And I, I think we we got to get a balance of those things. So you uh, dropped a, a little aside in there that I'd like to tease out a little further. You said the need to expand hydro resources that, of course, would be consistent with moving towards a carbon-free generation system. As you look at your 57 uh, units, how much more growth can you see? How much more power can you wring out of those and possibly new uh, facilities? Well, if I could wave a magic wand, you know, we can probably add somewhere between 8 and 10% more uh, to, the, to the existing units. Um, if you think about R57, they range in size from, you know, Hoover Dam at, at 2,100 megawatts and Glen Canyon Dam at uh, 1,400 megawatts, all the way down to very small units. I really think the answer is to take a look at the other 80-some-odd thousand dams that exist in the United States and figure out how do we take advantage of it. The number that always sticks with me is only 3% of the dams in the United States have a hydropower capability. If we simply took a small percentage of the remaining 97%, right, there's, there's roughly 90,000 dams in the U.S., and, and put power capabilities on it, I think that's part of the broader solution. And I know dams may not be uh, popular with some folks, but when I think about the alternatives, I'm glad today that WAP has got its 10,000 megawatts of nameplate capacity out of hydropower. It gives us both capacity, energy, and helps grid reliance and grid resilience. So uh, you, you mentioned uh, the possible use of batteries. Could, could you talk a little bit about your efforts to possibly couple battery energy storage with hydro? Well, one of the things that, that one theory, and I must admit it's, it's really um, a, a theory at this point, is we try to work with our, our partners at the Bureau of Reclamation to see if it would make sense to put large-scale batteries at some of our dams. As opposed to what we're doing today, uh, which is putting you know, batteries in locations where we've got to rely on other resources to charge them. Because one of the both the benefits and challenges of hydropower is we've got to let water through the dam, right? We, we have to generate at times when there is no market for it and or because of environmental regulations, we have to have a certain amount of flow. We also always have transmission lines coming out of the dams. So from my perspective, adding large-scale battery storage at some of these dams, which if you think about it, tend to be located fairly remotely, would give us the opportunity to charge those batteries when we have to run the dams and there may be no market for the power. And I think there's a, a great technology match between large-scale storage and hydropower because I know for sure we're going to be running the dams. We have to. That's just part of river flows and environmental regulations that we live with. But at the same time, we've got the capability then of charging the batteries and running them through the transmission lines, which already exist. Talk a little bit about what you've done in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, on the spectrum of one being just started, 10 being 
well, f- very advanced. How would you rate WAPA and the utility sector in, in the Western region? Well, you know, I always like to point out that uh, we have all in this industry for 100 years been adding intelligence to the system. Um, you know, the first smart meter was brought in in 1906 by Sam Insull, the right demand meter. So I, I also always want to point out that sometimes people think about it as a dumb grid, and it's not. We're continually adding uh, sensors and capabilities and understanding. I think we finally have an opportunity with some of the advanced artificial intelligence that we're seeing to get the machine learning and the algorithms and models uh, with this massive amount of computing power to help manage in this constantly changing environment. And I think it's important to, to recognize that what I talked about in the beginning with real-time engineers and all of our folks in the control room, at some point we're going to reach beyond the capability of human beings to do all these calculations. Think about it in the sense of a community with 10,000 solar rooftops and 2,000 batteries and a community solar field and a feed from WAPA. How do we take all of those things together and really squeeze out efficiencies? And I, I really believe that the work that's being done, we're working with the Department of Energy. You recall in 2019, uh, they announced $20 million in funding for R&D on, in AI and machine learning. Um, the Office of Electricity, where the PMAs are directly bolted onto, has $7 million for eight projects exploring the use of big data, AI, and machine learning to improve grid operations and management. And I think one of the important things that's going on right now is the North American Electric Resilience Energy Resilience Model, uh, which is a tremendous product to, for us to all have a really broad understanding, whether we call it NARM of really what's happening in real time on the grid. If you think about the interdependencies, whether it's weather, whether it's natural gas, whether it's hydropower, I believe that the secret sauce will be in the merging of all of that information. And it has to happen behind the scenes and with very strong computing power to help inform the decisions we make on physical grid operations. And I think that's to me, one of the most exciting pieces we have, I don't think it's, it's going to be critical to have a carbon-free system. So are we at the early days? Are we midway through or how far along are we? Well, in certain things, we're midway and a lot of things we're in the early stages. Um, when I think about having grid visibility and understanding what's going on, uh, really going on real time in the system, I feel pretty good. We're probably in, just below the midpoint. In terms of what I really envision, which is this broad scope of really understanding everything to the edge of the grid, uh, I still think we're just at the very beginning there. But we're learning more and more every single day. You know, how, for example, do we couple weather, right? One of the things everybody could predict this summer, as I said, the CalISO told us on September 29th they were going to be 2,300 megawatts short. The prediction that it would be hot in the summer is kind of a no-brainer, right? It's like saying increasing darkness towards evening. But what we didn't know was the time and the timing. And then to link that back through so that we're not all scrambling across the reliability coordinators, across the balancing areas, we ended up 
as we do phenomenally in this country, we ended up scrambling and getting the job done for the most part. But wouldn't it have been great to have more predictive modeling so that we could have known earlier on that, hey, cut the pump loads in California, right, on the Central Valley Project. Cut the pump loads at Friday morning of last week as opposed to Friday afternoon, right, by the time we were heading towards this peak. Wouldn't it have been phenomenal to take the weather data that we already have and match that to the load data and match that to the cloud cover so we could have had real pinpoint accuracy on when the cloud cover was going to impact solar and or when the temperature was going to get to such a point that the wind wasn't going to blow, right? Those are all data points we actually have, but it's putting that together in the right mix to get an output that we can then act on as an industry. As we talk, um, the, the country is suffering through a uh, pandemic and uh, an economic downturn that is a direct consequence of that. The last time we had a major downturn around 2007, 2008, the federal government saw investment in electric infrastructure uh, as a way of helping to stimulate the economy, one of the ways and I believe you got a borrowing authority of over $3 billion. Do you think as we move now and in coming years to recover economically from COVID, um, it would make sense to again invest in the grid? And what would you be able to accomplish? And what would your priority be? Well, again, great, great question. Uh, you know, the transmission infrastructure program came out of the Americans Recovery and Reinvestment Act, and it's a $3.25 billion loan authority, uh, revolving fund, so to speak, which still exists. We have done two projects. Uh, one was the Montana-Alberta tie line, which was uh, built and sold. And the other one that currently exists is what's known as Electrical District Number 5 to Palo Verde, market, which is down in Arizona. It is a phenomenal opportunity for low cost, near zero these days, given where the Fed is, uh, for the money. Ironically enough, uh, we've got seven or eight projects that are waiting in the wings. Uh, in fact, several that I signed the records of decision to move forward as far back as 2015. Here's the challenge. That is, the challenge is really the issue that until we get off-take agreements, and by we, I mean the industry, somebody to guarantee to take the power, it is difficult to get these lines built. I've argued that, yes, it's a challenge to get the permits. Yes, it's a bit of a hassle in time to deal with all the land rights. Yes, there's issues out there. You know, you've got to have good credit and borrowing money. Those aren't what are gating these projects. What are gating the projects is nobody is willing to step forward and say, I'm willing to sign a power contract for the next 30 years, thereby guaranteeing the repayment of the transmission side of the equation. I mean, there are literally dozens of transmission projects waiting in the wings. If you think about it, it is, it is the challenge of the uncertainty that we live in in the industry. So to answer your question directly, do I think it would be a great way to make sure that to, to help the economy get back on its track? Absolutely. Do we have a need, especially as we move to a carbon system, to build more transmission, to bring distant resources such as wind into critical markets? 100 percent. 
But until we solve this last leg, until we figure out who's going to pay for it and how they're going to pay for it, transmission is stymied. And they said, we've got, we've got 1,700 miles in current projects that are literally waiting for someone to stand up and say, I'm going to commit to this, the offtake of those, of those lines. So to tie everything we've been talking about together in a neat bow, we've talked about the COVID and the economic impact. We've talked about the major outage that's now roiling California uh, with rolling blackouts. And we've talked about the need of uh, um, evolving the transmission grid to de- deal with ever-increasing renewables. Do you think the solutions to bring those three things together, is this a timely opportunity to address the gating issue that you talked about and hit the ball out of the park? I do believe so. I do believe we have a unique opportunity to get these investments moving, which helps rebuild the economy, gets us towards a carbon-free future, creates jobs, as well as takes care of the uncertainty. If you think about society today, and I, and I do thank the men and women of WAPA. Mark, let me, let me just interject. When you say take care of uncertainty, you're talking about forestall the kind of problems we're seeing in California today? Correct. Okay, go ahead. Uh, again, I, I want to thank the men and women of this industry who have done a heck of a job. Can you imagine this pandemic without electricity? Right? So I think we have to keep that in mind at all times. We have a phenomenally reliable system, and that's why when it frays at the edges, we have such a challenge. I do believe there is the opportunity for the right investments, the right construction, and the ability to work towards what we all see societally, which is a carbon-free or carbon reduced carbon future, if we can get this right. The pieces are there. I just don't believe yet. We've, we've come up with the secret sauce to bring them all and tie them all together. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening to Grid Talk, and thanks to Mark Gabriel, Administrator and CEO of the Western Area Power Administration, for talking about the challenge of bringing the transmission system into a carbon-free world. You have been listening to Grid Talk. You can send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at enroll.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.